Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Some House Republicans worry the impeachment road could be politically perilous. The lead starts right now. Selling the plan, Speaker Kevin McCarthy gathers Republican Party colleagues and defends his call to order an impeachment inquiry into President Biden without calling for a vote force and without sufficient evidence to as yet convince all of his fellow House Republicans. Plus, a defiant convicted killer has been captured, sniffed out by a dog and infrared technology. A witness will be here, one who saw the arrest go down and the killer up close. And a political stunner from Republican Senator and former presidential Republican nominee Mitt Romney, a look at the impact as one of the elder statesmen of the Senate walks away. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. We're gonna start in our politics lead today. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is trying to get House Republicans all on the same page after he launched an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden, looking into whether Mr. Biden personally financially benefited from his son Hunter's business dealings and perhaps even worse. McCarthy met with the Republican conference behind closed doors earlier today, trying to defend his decision to launch an inquiry without bringing it first to a full floor vote, as he had promised he would do not even two weeks ago. He said he would do that as evidence of how serious a matter this was. Here is how he defended his decision to not do so to CNN's Manu Raju right after the meeting. Nancy Pelosi changed the president of this house on September 24th. It was withheld and good enough for every single Democrat here. It was good enough for the judge. Why would it have to be different today? Speaker McCarthy there referencing how then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi launched an impeachment inquiry into then-President Donald Trump in 2019. What he's saying is accurate. However, she did bring it to the floor for a vote five weeks later. As conservative David French writes in the New York Times, quote, in 2019, the House opened its impeachment inquiry only after it received reports that Donald Trump had attempted to coerce President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine into investigating Trump's chief domestic political opponent. That would be Mr. Biden. McCarthy's move, French writes, comes, quote, without anything approaching comparable evidence. But McCarthy is not just on the defense about how he launched the inquiry. He's also playing defense on why he launched it, as McCarthy or any House Republicans has yet to show the public any concrete evidence, as of now, that President Biden himself financially benefited from Hunter Biden's business dealings. In fact, McCarthy has made several claims during the impeachment inquiry announcement that, that you have to listen closely to. Here's the first one. We know that bank records show that nearly $20 million in payments were directed to the Biden family members and associates through various shale companies. That is accurate about, quote, Biden family and associates. Associates is a word doing a lot of work there. And yeah, Hunter Biden, Jimmy Biden, People have been making a lot of money off the Biden name for a long time. And there's plenty of questions about the ethics of that. But 
there is no public evidence as of now that Joe Biden made any of the money in any of these questionable deals, at least not that we've seen. Then there's this claim from Speaker McCarthy. Eyewitnesses have testified that the president joined on multiple phone calls and had multiple interactions. Dinners resulted in cars and millions of dollars into his son's and his son's business partners. CNN has looked into those claims uh, and found that McCarthy is omitting some context about what was and was not reportedly discussed at these calls and dinners. A Hunter Biden associate, Devin Archer, testified to the House Oversight Committee in July and said that, yeah, Joe Biden was on those calls and at the dinners, but he also said Joe Biden did not discuss any of the business on, that these uh, individuals were working on. Devin Archer said, yeah, this was a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, look how connected Hunter Biden is, but no business per se was discussed with Joe Biden. Republicans have presented no concrete evidence as of now that Joe Biden personally benefited financially from the dinners or calls. And then there's this claim about the FBI informant. Take a listen. Even a trusted FBI informant has alleged a bribe to the Biden family. It's true. An informant gave a tip of this nature to the FBI in 2020. It's true that the FBI viewed that informant as credible. But the underlying allegation that the Biden family was given a bribe is not proven. The informant was reporting something he had been told by a Ukrainian businessman. And as of now, there's no actual evidence of it. So yeah, stuff worth looking into, stuff worth investigating. And Republicans have been looking into it and they have been investigating. And as of now, they have not found anything that has convinced, say, conservative Freedom Caucus member, Republican Ken Buck. I've seen any evidence that links uh, President Biden to Hunter Biden's activities at this point. So now, Kevin McCarthy says they need these new impeachment inquiry powers, or as David French says, quote, the absence of such evidence is being used as a perverse justification for the impeachment inquiry, unquote. We should note, hovering over McCarthy's head, this is important context, hovering over his head like the sword of Damocles is this threat from the MAGA right, people such as Congressman Matt Gates, that any moment just one of them can go to the floor of the House and make a motion to vacate, to call for a vote, to oust him as Speaker. A bunch of conservatives have been grumbling about McCarthy for a number of reasons, mainly because of spending bills and, and other issues like that. And, and this seems to be, political analysts say, an attempt by Speaker McCarthy to try to sate them, at least for now. McCarthy is also staring down another major battle, avoiding a government shutdown. He has just 17 days until the government runs out of money. And he is scrambling to try to get Republicans on board with a short-term spending bill to keep the government open. Let's go to CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Manu, you spoke to uh, Republicans today who were in that closed-door meeting with McCarthy. What are they telling you? Well, a lot of them are very cautious. They don't know exactly everything that's in the evidence so far. They want to learn more about what these committees have uncovered. They plainly acknowledge that there is not proof to show that Joe Biden 
acted on behalf of Hunter Biden to try to benefit him, take any official action on his behalf, or that the president, as vice president, profited by Hunter Biden's business dealings. Though they say there's a smoke, they want to see if there's a fire behind that smoke. And a lot of them simply are also uncertain about whether they would vote to impeach Biden if it were to come to that, showing the hurdles ahead for McCarthy as they open up this inquiry. And some of them also acknowledging that Republicans could face blowback if they go too far. I, I think we should always take one step after another to, uh, uh, to go where the facts lead. Uh, you get ahead of your skis, so to speak, uh, when you make an assumption about what you're going to find. It certainly didn't help Democrats. I mean, uh, you know, I, I haven't seen anybody do too well after an impeachment uh, process. Uh, you know, it didn't do well for us in 98 with uh, President Clinton. It, I don't see it as good politics. I do, think, though, think there's enough stuff here that it deserves to be looked at. I don't want this to be seen as just, uh, you know, uh, a response to impeachment from the previous president. This should be based on, on the facts, and uh, if the facts take us down that road, then, then so be it. But it shouldn't be a tit for tat kind of it is also uncertain exactly how long this investigation may take shape. McCarthy did not provide a time frame when talking to Republicans behind closed doors, indicating that it would happen in an expeditious manner. But does that extend into next year? And next year, things will get more complicated as they get into an election season, particularly among those Republicans who serve in districts that Joe Biden carried. There are 18 of them, many of them skeptical about this push and certainly not ready to vote to impeach. So a lot of questions here, Jake, as Republicans plan to issue subpoenas, have public hearings, but can they get the evidence and can they get the votes in line? All major questions in the weeks ahead. All right, Manu Raju, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Republican Congressman Steve Womack of Arkansas. He sits on the House Appropriations Committee. Congressman, uh, about the impeachment inquiry, you told an Arkansas newspaper, quote, we shouldn't be afraid of a fact-finding process as long as it's a fact-finding process. I agree, but I mean, hasn't that been what the House Oversight Committee has been doing for the last nine months? Well, they've been working on it. Um, and you know, to a lot of people, uh, there seems to be enough out there, um, uh, kind of the fog of this whole issue, kind of hanging over Washington right now. And I, really, I think the only way to, uh, to settle the issue is to do the fact-finding. Nobody should be afraid of that. And let the facts take us where they go. And if there is no proof of any wrongdoing, then there would be no Im impeachment uh, article file. So, uh, look, I, I shouldn't, we shouldn't be afraid of allowing these committees, Ways and Means, Judiciary, and Oversight to continue their work. And, uh, and heck, if I was the White House, I would probably want that uh, just to settle the score once and for all and so that we can move on to some other things. And we have other things we need to move on to. Sure. Um, but let me just, just the politics of this. You think that it's possible for uh, Kevin McCarthy to launch a House impeachment, uh, to, to launch an impeachment inquiry that doesn't result in impeachment? I mean, you think he's going to allow something that's going to end with Joe, President Biden's name being cleared? Uh, that just doesn't seem likely in this political environment. Well, it may not seem likely to a lot of people, given the politics of the day. But let's just remember, impeachment is a very powerful tool. And, and should be the tool of last resort in holding the executive branch accountable. And I think there's enough clear-eyed, uh, fair-minded, 
practically uh, you know, geared Republicans in the Republican conference that will uh, look to see if there are indeed high crimes and misdemeanors that come out of an inquiry that would be justifiable in uh, supporting articles of impeachment. So let's just see where this goes and then let the facts uh, take us there and, and, uh, and then we'll have more to say about it at that time. So you're on the Appropriations Committee. I mean, Speaker McCarthy is adamant he wants a clean short-term spending bill. Uh, you expressed concern to CNN uh, yesterday that the margins for getting any deal done are very, very thin. Um, are we headed towards a government shutdown this month, you think? Well, the signs certainly point that way. Uh, maybe the Vegas odds makers are, uh, you know, putting it on their book because, uh, look, here we are right now. We, we're, we're in a blue screen environment today. Welcome to Washington's version of Burning Man. We are stuck in the mud. We had the DOD bill ready to go on the floor today, but for the fact that we couldn't produce the votes to approve the rule, uh, we've had to pull that bill away. And so now we're just kind of treading water, as it were, uh, waiting uh, for, our, for our next call. So we're going to have to do a new rule on the, on the car issue that we had packaged with the DOD rule. And then that's probably what we'll vote on tomorrow. Then we will depart for the weekend and come back next week in hopes of being able to resume the appropriations process, which everybody agrees needs to happen. We just don't seem to have the votes to be able to move the process along from where it currently stands. You know what they're saying about you in the Senate. They're saying, hey, we, you know, we're 51-49. We have a really slender majority here as well. And we are able to come together and pass bipartisan appropriations bills. What's wrong with the House? Why can't you guys do it? I, I hear that. And, and look, the Senate has done their work. I'm a House appropriator. We do our work. There are always going to be differences. Uh, the Senate has marked a bill to the debt ceiling agreement. The House has chosen to move those numbers lower. And clearly, the uh, fringe members of our caucus are demanding a straight $1.471 trillion spending package if we're going to get their votes. It's a thin majority, Jake. You know that. Um, we have to have 218. We're not going to get any Democrat support. So until, uh, unless and until that we can coalesce around a different strategy, this is, I think, where we're going to be. And eventually, I think the Senate will complete its work and then attach it to the Milcon VA bill that we've already transmitted to them and send it right back to us, perhaps in time to save a government shutdown at the end of this month. But it's real. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's real. Yeah. Uh, but I think we should be doing everything we can right now to prevent that from happening, to prevent a lapse in appropriations, and to send a message to the economy, to national security, to federal workers, to all concerned that this is a this is not a situation that we want to get into at the end of this month. I wanted to get your reaction today to the news this afternoon. Uh, Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney, your party's nominee for president in 2012, announced he's not going to seek uh, re-election uh, for another term, calling for a new generation uh, of leaders. Uh, he's really one of the last statesmen uh, of the U.S. Senate. Um, what, what, do you, what do you make uh, of his departure? Well, it saddens me because I, I happen to admire Mitt Romney, supported him for president when he ran. Uh, I know that there's a certain part of the Republican base right now that has a, a certain amount of disdain for him. But look, uh, we're in a situation right now where really good members 
the Mitt Romneys of the world, the Fred Uptons of the world, are beginning to move into the next chapter of their lives and leaving Washington. It's sad to me because these are true statesmen. These are people that uh, have made a difference in our country, that have been successful by any means, and I hate to lose their wisdom, their leadership, and their expertise as they move on uh, to the next part of their life. Republican Congressman Steve Womack of Arkansas, good to see you, sir. Come back soon. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Jake. Thank you. As Republicans take this impeachment route, is it too late for Democrats to intervene? I'll let one Democrat respond next. Plus, new video of that inmate in Pennsylvania, that escapee, now in custody, thank heaven, dressed in a white robe, barefoot in handcuffs. The plans to make sure this time he stays behind bars. That's ahead. Plus, nearly 60 years after the tragic assassination of President Kennedy, A Secret Service agent who was with him that day is coming forward with what he says is a major revelation about that fateful day. And we're back with our politics lead and more on Speaker McCarthy launching this impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Here to give Democratic reaction is Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz of Florida. Uh, So, Congressman, thanks so much for, for being here. Speaker McCarthy is defending not bringing this to the floor for a vote. Um, even though he said he would do that about 12 days ago, he said he would, by noting that Nancy Pelosi uh, changed the rules in 2019 when she launched the impeachment inquiry into then-President Trump without a floor vote, though she did bring it to the floor five weeks later. You weren't in Congress at the time, but he has a point, kind of, right? Well, except he took the opposite position, right? He said that she needs to bring it to a vote, which she eventually did. He also said this go-around that if they do an impeachment inquiry, he will bring it to a vote. But you and I both know why he's not bringing it to a vote. It's not because he's had some policy change, because he doesn't have the votes. Right. Right? He, he's got so enough members who would vote against it. There are about 19 or 20, I think it's 19, actually, Republicans who uh, represent districts that Biden won. Right. And they don't want to, I mean, they're, they're worried that there isn't enough evidence to justify this. You talk to them, right? I mean, what do they tell you? Well, it's unpopular at home, right? Listen, if the polling showed that the American people want Joe Biden to be impeached, that would have already happened. They would have already called the vote and impeached them six weeks ago, three months ago. That's what they're trying to do with all these nine months of hearings, by the way. By the way, we've been been having the impeachment inquiry for the last nine months. It hasn't worked, so they're rebranding it. They're hitting the video game reset on what they've been doing in oversight and judiciary. But no, the polling shows that that folks don't want it back home. Well, they don't want him impeached necessarily, but there is a new CNN poll that shows, if we could put that up, 61% of the American people think that Biden had at least some involvement in Hunter Biden's business dealings while he served as vice president. So doesn't this suggest, that polling number, that these allegations are connecting? Uh, that's that's the, the American people, that's the electorate at whole, uh, as a whole, not just Republicans. And then the perception of wrongdoing could hurt Joe Biden. Well, look, they've spent nine months with the woulda, coulda, shoulda, but there's no evidence. And that's why the, the polling on impeachment is different. Right. He, we know that, you know, he was on a phone one time or he had dinner one time. And what Republicans have done is said, see, there's the evidence. He was he was in the room. He was at dinner. Or he was on the phone. He spoke to his son. But there has been no evidence at all. Zero. And if there were, they would be calling for a vote on impeachment. This is not like they want to give Joe Biden the benefit of the doubt. Right. This is all about trying to appease Donald Trump. If they had the evidence, they would have tried to appease Donald Trump three, four, five, six months ago. So. Let me posit that, like, for the sake of argument, that, that you are correct in what you're saying. Does Joe Biden not bear any responsibility for the fact that his brothers and his son have been making millions of dollars, you know, profiting off 
their relationship to him, being lobbyists and advisors and this and that, uh, be, because of him? I mean, is that not... Yeah, listen, I, I understand people in this town do that and their relatives do it, but, like, he's been letting them do it. Yeah, listen, if there was something that was unethical, obviously, that borders on illegal, then it needs to be prosecuted, right? On the Hunter Biden stuff, right? That needs to be prosecuted. If, if he's broken the law, he needs to be held account. Democrats have said that on Donald Trump, who, you know, has 50 percent of the president's impeachments in this country, 100 percent of its indictments. If Hunter Biden has done something wrong, he should be indicted. You know, as far as the culture in Washington, the revolving door in Congress, the revolving door in the Pentagon, being able to make money off family members. Listen, that may be something that Democrats and Republicans should address on a bipartisan basis. Well, that's the but thing. we can't just we can't just say, oh, Joe Biden's family did it. But they don't want to ask any questions about Jared Kushner getting two billion dollars from the Saudis, who they blame for 9-11. Right. So. <laughs> So, but I mean, but that's the whole thing the, the, the people always say about in Washington, the real crime, quote unquote, crime is not what's illegal, but what's legal, right? It's perfectly legal to be the son of a very powerful person and traffic in that connection. Listen, I'll, I'll, I'll vote for term limits. I'll vote for to close the revolving door. The Republicans won't even bring those bills to the floor, but yet they want to go after Joe Biden for stuff that's been going on in Washington, D.C. for half a century. Right. But that's my point. Could he not have done something? I understand that it's legal. Sure. So listen, in the in the event that we eventually conclude that, hey, it's unsavory what he did. Unseemly. Right. It doesn't mean that it rises to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors and deserves impeachment. This is not about the facts. This is about Donald Trump, who has beamed this down from Truth Social, who's meeting with members every day right in the House. He's telling them, you must impeach Joe Biden so I can also run against someone Who's impeached? Donald Trump doesn't want to be the only one that's been impeached in the next election. What when you talk to your uh, your Florida colleague Matt Gates, like what what does that conversation go like? Well, look, Matt, Matt is on a on a mission, right? He's interested in just napalming the whole the whole deal. And for Matt, quite frankly, his strategy is a win win, right? He calls for a vote on the vacancy. He won't get the votes, of course, but Democrats probably don't throw the House into chaos. They probably don't team up with the Freedom Caucus. So then he says Kevin McCarthy is now the Speaker of the Democrats. And right, it's a slow bleed for the Speaker. So that's the box that Matt is is willing to put his leadership in. Yeah. I feel like we should be talking about some policies and issues that might actually benefit the American people. Why most of us ran for office. (laughs) Might benefit the American people. Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz of Florida, good to see you. Thanks so much. We're standing by for Republican Senator Mitt Romney of Utah to come to the cameras. He made a big announcement earlier today. He is not going to seek re-election. Also ahead, the dramatic arrest of that Pennsylvania fugitive. Thank God he's been found. Found asleep in tall grass. Apparently asleep on top of his stolen rifle. A witness who saw that arrest within yards of his home is going to join us. Coming up. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Right now we're waiting on Republican Senator Mitt Romney of Utah to begin his news conference. Today he called for a new generation of leaders and announced he would not seek re-election when his Senate term ends in January 2025. We'll bring that to you as soon as his remarks begin. In our national lead, the 14-day manhunt in Pennsylvania, thankfully, is over. We're proud to announce the subject is in custody. Repeating, subject is in custody. Hello, Cavalcante, the brutal killer who crab-blocked his way out of that Pennsylvania prison, finally caught wearing a stolen Eagle sweatshirt. The international criminal found by a plane using thermal heat-seeking technology in the dead of night, detecting him apparently sleeping atop his stolen rifle in tall grass. A police canine pinning him down by biting him as law enforcement moved in. CNN's Brian Todd is in Chester County, Pennsylvania. And Brian, we're learning that Cavalcanti just finished up his first court appearance. That's right, Jake. We are told just moments ago that Cavalcante was formally arraigned. He was charged with felony escape and he was denied bail. This capture took place just a few feet behind me, uh, past this brush and over a creek over there and uh, a little bit up a path. What we can tell you is that the sequence basically began a little bit after midnight last night, Eastern time, when a burglar alarm went off in a house not far from here. Uh, authorities converged on that house and did not find Cavalcante. He was actually captured about uh, a quarter mile uh, after that. Um, after midnight, there was a thermal imaging image captured of him by a plane, a DEA fixed-wing aircraft, that captured Brian, a thermal uh, Brian, image of I'm him gonna come back. Brian, in this I'm, area. Brian, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We're going to go to Senator Romney, and then we'll come back to you. And uh, I think some of the people that are coming along next want to have a say in, uh, in how we, uh, we leave the earth and how they prepare for the, the future they're going to live in. So, so, with him likely being on the ballot next year, it would give you trouble running for re-election? You know, uh, there was a recent poll in Utah which had me uh, showing some very strong numbers. I was very pleased to see that. I think the people in Utah don't all agree with me on the posture I took with regards to Donald Trump, but they respect people who vote their conscience. And, uh, and I, I appreciate that and my fellow citizens. And uh, I, I don't have any question in my mind that I'd have won if I'd have run again. I just don't think that we need another person in their 80s. Uh, I'm a little long of tooth already. We don't need more like me. The issues of the day relate to China, climate change, AI, uh, and a lot of guys in their 80s who know how to deal with those issues. You mentioned your age as one of the reasons for not running for re-election. Is that a nice way to say to some of your colleagues who are older that maybe it's time for them to step down as well? Well, the, the, everybody's going to make their own decision, of course, and, uh, and consider their own circumstances. Uh, I'm just looking at my age and where I am. I, I, I wish if I knew that I was going to be like Chuck Grassley and, and be able to be vigorous and dynamic into my 90s, might, I might have reached a different decision, but you never know. Uh, but I do think that, that the times we're living in really demand the next generation to step up and, uh, and express their point of view. 
and to make the decisions that will shape our American politics over the coming century. And just having a bunch of guys that were around, the baby boomers, who were around in the post-war era, we're not the right ones to be making the decisions for tomorrow. So, 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 where the Republican Party is now. When you look at the Republican Party, particularly where the House of Representatives is, do you feel like this is a Republican Party that is beholden to former President Donald Trump? Well, there's no question but that the Republican Party today is, is in the shadow of Donald Trump. Uh, he is the leader of the greatest portion of the Republican Party. Uh, it's a populist, I believe, demagogue portion of the party. Uh, look, I represent a small wing of the party, if you will. I call it the wise wing of the Republican Party. Uh, and uh, I don't believe we're going away. I think ultimately we'll see a resurgence and come back into leadership of the party. Uh, look, uh, my wing of the party talks about policy and about issues that will make a difference to the lives of the American people. The uh, Trump wing of the party uh, talks about resentments of various kind and getting even and, and settling scores and, and revisiting the 2020 election. What are the policies for the future? And my party is only going to be successful getting young people to vote for us if we're talking about the future. And that's not happening so far in that other wing. But Senator, 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 aren't you going to lose that battle because you are fighting that wing of the party and stepping aside? And to add to that, you had said just that a lot of the party simply does not believe in the Constitution. What do you mean by that? Well, there, the, uh, there were, I, I was in a rally where someone said to me, you know, if you're elected, this is when I was running for Senate last time, if, uh, if you're elected, will you close down ABC, NBC, and CBS because they're not sending out the truth? And this was in a Republican rally, and I was like, really? I mean, there, there's no question, there's no question, there's some portion of, of my party and the opposition party who thinks we need to have a, a strong person, a strong man to, to put aside the Constitution. And the, for that matter, President Trump, former President Trump, said we should put aside the Constitution and reinstall him as president. I mean, so, yeah, there are some people who believe that. I believe they're sorely wrong. I believe the great majority of American people believe that they're wrong. But, um, uh, and, and in terms of what I'm going to be doing, look, I, I want to get more young people voting and involved in the political process, and that's something I'm going to devote myself to after the next year and a half when I spend Senator it. Senator Romney, thank you, Senator Romney. Uh, who do you plan to endorse as your successor? Governor Cox, Mia Love, um, Congressman... Owens, um, and uh, second, why not stay and you know fight for you know what you believe in, even if it takes you to your mid 80s? Well, in part because I believe we want some other young people coming in and making those decisions. Uh, I don't intend to make endorsements. By the way, I, I think endorsements are what's the old line, the John McCain line? They're not worth a bucket of spit. Uh, I, who who the heck cares who endorsed who? You make your decision as a voter about what you think about the candidate and their point of view and their vision, uh, and you don't care about what some other person said. So I'm, I'm not planning on... But who do you want to succeed you? I don't have a comment on who might succeed me. I, I hope that, uh, that we get a very strong contender and, and, uh, and that it's someone who's a little younger than me. Senator, you. if you think you're too old, what about Biden and Trump, who are way older than you? Do you think they should be rerunning? Oh, I think it would be a great thing if both President Biden and former President Trump were to stand aside and let their respective party pick someone in the next generation. Uh, President Trump, excuse me, President Biden, when he was running, said he was a transitional figure to the next generation. Well, time to transition. Uh, David Ignatius this morning made a strong argument uh, that we should see that kind of a change. I think both parties would be far better served if, uh, if they were going to be represented by uh, people uh, other than those of us from the baby boom generation. Do you have yeah. any, you, you have pointed to some of your bipartisan uh, accomplishments in your statement. 
earlier. Um, are you concerned at all about that the, the ranks of senators who are at the table forming gangs, that, that, that that's thinning out? Well, we had a group of about 10 of us, and that group has dissipated a bit. Rob Portman is gone. Uh, you know, Susan Collins has become really the ranking member in appropriations. That's got to be her her focus. Then you've got uh, Cinema, Mansion, Tester on the Democratic side. So we're all pulling in different directions these days. Coming together like we had uh, was a very unusual thing. Look, I I, I recognize that I. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I had a, an embarrassment of riches initially, which is that as a first-term senator, I got together with a group of other folks, and we got a lot of stuff done. Uh, a COVID relief package when the White House and then Speaker Pelosi couldn't get one done, an infrastructure bill, reform of the Electoral Count Act, religious liberty protections in the Marriage Act, gun uh, safety legislation. We got a lot done, which was a lot of fun. That's kind of unusual, uh, and uh, looking forward, I think it's going to be more challenging for something like that to occur again. Senator, are you going to seek elected office again? Will you run for office ever again, high office, Senate? Uh, I never imagined I would be running this time, uh, and I can't imagine doing it again. But there's that old line from Dumb and Dumber, which is, you know, there's a one out of a million shot. So you're saying there's a chance? All right. So I'm not, certainly not planning on that. I've got no, no future, future campaigns in mind. Colleagues on both sides of the aisle when it comes to missing your leadership, missing your participation in these issues. And secondly, something you're very well going to be a part of potentially is another impeachment trial in the Senate, this time with President Joe Biden. What's your response to that? Well, I have been heartened uh, today as I've received uh, texts from uh, a great number of my colleagues saying they're going to miss me. I uh, appreciate that. I was heartened by the poll in Utah a couple of weeks ago that was very, very encouraging as well with a very positive approval rating. That, that feels good. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, following the George Costanza lead, which is you, you leave when they're laughing, you leave when they're, when they're wishing you would stay. Uh, and, I, and I really don't want to be in an institution where people are saying, why is he still hanging around? Speaking of that, uh, and, and so I, I, I'm going uh, to continue to work over the next year and a half to really address the big three or four issues immigration, the level of our debt we have, a climate, a climate change strategy, and, uh, and a strategy to deal with China. What about a, so, an impeachment, on a, another impeachment trial potentially? Uh, you know, I know the House is beginning an impeachment inquiry. Um, I haven't heard any allegation of something that would rise to the level of a high crime or misdemeanor. I think it would be very unusual to actually see a referral of impeachment. I, I don't expect that to happen. Uh, they can inquire. Uh, and see if there's evidence that, the, that shows something else. I don't think they'll find that. I don't know. But there's been no allegation of that. And any, any uh, uh, hint of that has been denied by the president. So I, I'm not expecting that to occur. Senator, well, Senator, can you talk about, you've been talking about your legacy and how you want to leave before people, as you said, are laughing at you. What would you say to some of your colleagues who have been experiencing? Uh, I was, they were laughing at George Costanza, yes. not at yeah. me. So. Yeah. <laughs> but that, they, they laugh at me too, but that's a different matter. What yeah. do you say to some of your colleagues, including the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, and Senator Dianne Feinstein, who are going through their health? diagnosis and facing criticism to step down? Well, uh, you know, in their position, for instance, you know, take Mitch McConnell, he's the leader of the Republican caucus. What he's able to do at his age is really extraordinary. I mean, and, and, and I'm, a first, I'm a first-term senator. Even as a second-term senator, I would not be a committee chair or a ranking member. I'd be a junior person trying to get stuff done and fight through the, the regular order process. I was able to break through that with this gang that came together. But, uh, but he's in a position to make a real difference at his age, which, uh, you know, if I were majority leader of the Senate, 
I might, uh, I, I might reach a different decision too, but I'm not. Senator, Senator in, that, in, that, in, your, in the excerpt from the book that just came out today, you have some harsh, at least, memories of Leader McConnell. Are you at all disappointed by the leadership that you've seen in your Republican Party that, that, that you've encountered, particularly with the impeachment trials and in dealing with Trump? No, actually, I have a great deal of respect for, for Leader McConnell, and one of the mysteries to me is why he is so unpopular in national polls. I, I don't understand that. He, he is the singular reason why we have a conservative Supreme Court. I hope people recognize that. Uh, and and uh, uh, he also is a very effective leader of our group. When you have 50 people, a Republican group, basically 50 of us, every one of whom thinks they ought to be president, how you lead a group like that is not easy, and he has done it with skill and aplomb over a number of years. So I have nothing but the highest respect for him. Uh, and uh, and I, I, there's nothing that I know of in, in, in the book that uh, McKay Coppins has written that's critical of, of, uh, uh, of the leader. I mean, I, and I, the personal conversations, the private conversations, and his public pronouncements, I've, I've been nothing but a bit more, more impressed. In, in so, that book, you say that McConnell said that Trump thought was an idiot. That was the words of McConnell. One is that true? I'm not going to. Yeah, I'm not going yeah, to. I'm not going to comment on, on uh, uh, those specific things because uh, those were not quotes from me. There were quotes from a member of my staff who actually uh, quoted that. So I, I won't comment but about you also that. The, but I think. The but I think. Objected I, on January 6th. I think. I think. That, I think the uh, the point was that uh, with regards to that comment, which is that I think uh, Leader McConnell thought it was not a great idea on the part of Donald Trump to be critical of jury members at the time they were deliberating. It was kind of an obvious point. And then what about Cruz and Hawley? Because you said that they were disingenuous on them objecting. Oh, I, I, look, I, I, uh, yeah, I really do believe that, that, um, that the, many of the people uh, in leadership, meaning elected officials who claimed that 2020 was a stolen election, that we need to recount the ballots or whatever, other than through the normal judicial process, I think they knew better. Uh, and and uh, and I have expressed that numerous times. That's not a, not a surprise. Look, look, the, the, uh, democracy requires uh, belief and credibility in, in elections, and and uh, so people who are casting aspersions on our election process are threatening one of the bases of our very uh, very foundation. So uh, yeah, I, I was critical of that and continue to be, and I'm sure they wouldn't be surprised to hear it again. Are you worried another January sixth could happen after this election? Is that part of? Oh, I think I think I think my guess is after the next election, uh, whatever happens, there, there'll be plenty of people around the Capitol to make sure that doesn't happen again. What do you think it's going to take for the party to not be so dominated by Donald Trump anymore? Uh, you know, I, I saw an article in, in the Atlantic which uh, which pointed out that young people are not warming to the MAGA message, and I think that's true. Uh, whether Donald Trump is there, there will be someone that follows him, that follows in his footsteps and, and gives the same uh, populist patter. Uh, I don't think it will be successful long term because I think young people are paying far more attention, are not going to be sucked into the, uh, the, the populist notions. And, and so I think, I think our party goes back to, if you will, the wise wing of the Republican Party. Uh, as time goes on. But do, do, do you think that your, your party, though, I mean, do, Trump is leading, dominating in the polls right now. He's probably going to be your nominee. You're on the outlier of the party. Yeah. There's no signs that what you're saying, that the party's going to shift oh, away. I'm not talking, gonna shift away. I'm not talking about in the next two years. I'm talking over the next decade or so. I mean, I, I, I just, I mean, populism doesn't work. I, I quote that M.L. Mencken line, which is to every complex problem, there's a solution which is simple, clear, and wrong. And unfortunately, that's what we're hearing. And again, on the, on the Trump wing of the party, I haven't heard policy. 
other than saying we're going to build a wall. And by the way, he was president. He was president for four years. He built 50 miles. What did he get done? I said, well, how about the tax change? Well, the tax, that was Paul Ryan. That, that wasn't the Biden plan. He did, of course, he had a health care plan. Remember that? That was going to, everybody's going to have low-cost health insurance that was fabulous. Never proposed. Never saw. He was in four years. So it's not a policy-centric approach. And if you don't have policy to match your, your rhetoric, ultimately, it's not going to be successful. Uh, Senator, do, do you expect me to be the greatest regret at the end of the day? Senator, in that case, it, um, in, the, uh, in McKay's article, um, you mentioned, or it's mentioned that you've spoken to Joe Manchin about possibly starting a third political party. Is there any interest in that, or is that sort of died out? Oh, I, that was several months ago. Who knows what, what might happen? I think uh, Senator Manchin is looking more closely at no labels at this stage. I, I can't speak for him, but uh, Joe and I speak a good deal, and I raise ideas with him. Um, uh, I, I actually think a, a third party candidate would make it more likely that it's just a spoiler and uh, it would not be successful in electing someone. So that's not... You say that you want to step aside and let the new generation come in. What yeah. are you doing about that? What am I doing about that? Stepping aside. And, but, and but I'm more also, than that. How are you getting young people into politics? Well, I, I, one of the things I intend to do is going on college campuses and speaking in college campuses to encourage young people to actually run for office and to vote. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's a way to actually mandate this. I probably wouldn't. But, uh, but I'd like colleges and universities to insist that the young people vote and make it easy, have voting booths on campus and make sure we get more of the young people because it's the world they're going to be inheriting. Thanks, guys. What was the biggest regret in your career? What was the biggest regret in your career? I don't have, I don't have any. Have you talked to President, President Biden? Have you spoken to the President? We have been watching this news conference with Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney, who today announced he will not seek re-election. Let's bring in uh, CNN political director uh, David uh, Chalian. David, this really does mark the end uh, of an era of sorts. Uh, he is one of, if not the last statesman in the U.S. Senate. Uh, there's no doubt that it marks the end of a storied uh, political career. It's hard to imagine him having something beyond this. But as even Mitt Romney noted, some of the uh, elder statesmen of the party remain in their roles in both parties, something he's arguing against with this announcement, Jake. He, he's arguing for a real generational shift, time to sort of pass the torch to the next generation, uh, which is why he sort of takes this criticism to both Trump and Biden. He said to Dan Balls in The Washington Post in an interview earlier that he thinks that's likely to be the choices before the American people, and he thinks it's a terrible choice uh, to uh, present because uh, neither one of them, he believes, at this point in their lives are in the position to lead uh, properly into the next generation. And I would just note, though, that this is a, a Mitt Romney. I mean, think about going back to him running against uh, Teddy Kennedy uh, for the Senate, serving as governor of Massachusetts, a very liberal state, and he's a conservative Republican, making uh, that run for uh, the White House and now serving in this role in the United States Senate from Utah and, and doing so in a way where he wanted to sort of provide the conscience of the party in the Trump era, the only Republican senator to uh, vote twice in two different impeachments, that is, uh, to convict Donald Trump in both of those impeachment trials. And he, he said that um, where his party is going doesn't work, that not only is he saying there needs to be a generational change and he doesn't want to be in his mid-80s at the end of a second term, but that he is 
uh, hopeful, it sounded like to me, that young people uh, are going to reject the populism that is coursing through uh, the Republican Party, that this, uh, the, the Trump MAGA uh, uh, sort of philosophy that is the dominant force inside today's Republican Party will die out because young people seem, uh, in his estimation, um, totally unenthusiastic uh, about it. All right, David Talian, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Back to our national lead and that dramatic end to the 14-day manhunt for that escaped brutal killer, Danilo Cavalcante. Finally, thankfully, captured this morning, the international criminal now facing a felony escape charge. Let's bring in Robert Russell, who was 100 yards away, about the length of a football field from where uh, Cavalcante was captured. Robert, you and your wife and your four kids were in your house on lockdown for 48 hours when at around 6 a.m. this morning you saw hundreds of police cars and heard a helicopter above. What was going through your mind? Uh, a lot of things. Uh, I think the first thing was initially, I really hope the police are surrounding this guy. Um, but we, we did know that we were safe because of how many police officers were in the area. There had to have been uh, well over 50 cop cars with at least two cops in each car. And, um, so we knew there was, there was pretty high hopes that they were going to get him that, this morning, um, which we're thankful they did. I don't think people understand necessarily how much people in Chester County were living in terror about this brutal killer being on the loose. Uh, you called your landlord at one point, and she said that Cavalcante what, had been seen in her own yard? Yeah, that's correct. Um, we had been in contact with her. She lives just across the, the creek and then also the pond. Um, but yeah, she she had said that she had seen something and so she called the cops and they had done a walkthrough of her house and that kind of just escalated things for us making making it more aware that we need to be more secure and just stay away from the windows as best as possible make sure everything was locked again and uh yeah just try and stay safe hunker down and let the cops do their job did you have a, a plan ready if cavalcante made his way uh onto your property into your home um, partially, yes. I mean, I think, I think everyone kind of has a plan of what they would like to do. I think, uh, I don't know if I, what I would have exactly done in the moment, um, if he did enter the house, obviously we were, uh, my, like you said, I've got four kids, uh, two of them are two month old toddler or infants. And so we were kind of up all night, uh, listening to the scanners on uh, YouTube or whatever, and, uh, just being aware of what was going on outside of our house and trying to be extra careful. And if we heard anything, we would either call the cops or give a tip. We had actually seen our barn door open multiple times um, throughout the last day and a half. And we called that in just because we didn't know if the cops had been there. We hadn't seen them walk into the back. Um, so that was a little terrifying as well. How have you and your wife been explaining it to the two kids that are not the infants, the other two who, who, uh, who might have some understanding that things weren't normal yeah so we have a three-year-old ruby and a two-year-old jordan um, both girls and uh they didn't fully understand we just we kept it as lighthearted as possible because i mean obviously as parents we want to guard them from things that might scar them or uh, terrify them there's no need uh, we knew he would be captured we knew it'd be okay and um, thank god that it, everything was really um, so we we just said 
cops are going to get the bad guys, and that's what the cops did. All right, Robert Russell, thank you so much. Really, really uh, appreciate it. And, yeah, I'm, I'm glad, too, that uh, they caught this guy and that you and your wife and kids are all okay. Thanks yeah. for joining us. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. And be sure to tune in to CNN tonight. Laura Coates is going to take a look at the manhunt. Capturing a killer. That's at 11 p.m. Eastern tonight, only on CNN. The gravity of that big announcement from Senator Mitt Romney saying he will not run for re-election, not shutting down questions about what may be next for his political future. Stay with us. Uh, but if you have any questions. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to the Lead Up Jake Tapper this hour, back behind bars. The killer who's been on the run for 14 days after escaping that Chester County, Pennsylvania prison is now in custody again. How a police dog pinned the fugitive while he was sleeping on top of that stolen rifle in the tall grass, all within the search parameter. Plus, the new account from one of the Secret Service agents at JFK's side when he was assassinated. Why this raises new questions about the magic bullet theory. We're going to talk to that Secret Service agent this hour. And leading this hour, Republican Senator from Utah, Mitt Romney, just announced he will not seek re-election when his term ends in January 2025. He released a video statement on Twitter earlier today. At the end of another term, I'd be in my mid-80s. Frankly, it's time for a new generation of leaders. They're the ones that need to make the decisions that will shape the world they will be living in. The Utah senator just held a press conference on Capitol Hill where he just took questions from reporters about his career, the future of the Republican Party, and former President Trump, and rumors that Senator Joe Manchin will potentially run for president in 2024 on a third-party ticket, the No Labels Party. CNN chief congressional correspondent Manu Raju was in the room there for Romney's press conference. Manu, outside of Romney's inner circle, the senator's announcement today came as a a real surprise. Yeah, no question about it, because there was a hope that he would actually run for re-election. In fact, in a lobbying campaign among some top Republicans urging him to do so. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell will hope that, Mitch, that Mitt Romney would run, not necessarily because the seat would flip, but because he represents a voice, an influential voice within the Republican Party, a more establishment voice, a Trump, an anti-Trump voice, one that is waning in the Republican Party. It, even though he was the party's presidential nominee, in 2012, much has changed since then, something that he flatly acknowledged in his press conference just moments ago. We had a chance to talk to him on a wide range of subjects about his decision to step aside. He said that it's simply an issue about his age. By the time he were to, if he were to run and win re-election, he would be in his 80s. He said that is there's people should not be in office in his 80s. He said repeatedly. He said it's time for a new generation of leaders. He sharply criticized Donald Trump. He criticized Biden as well. He did believe he could win re-election, but he said it would be difficult acknowledging the politics within his party. Now, he also made clear time and again 
that his wing of the party is essentially in the middle of a battle with the Trump wing of the party. He argued that his wing is focused on policy, is focused on some of the key issues that are central to the Republican Party platform, not about a personality, which is the Trump wing of the party. That is what, something that he says he will continue to focus on, Jake, in the months and weeks ahead, particularly after he leaves office, making clear here. And Jake, just take a listen to what he had to say moments ago. have a say in, uh, in how we, uh, we leave the earth and how they prepare for the, the future they're going to live in. <laughs> so uh, you guys have uh, already seen the statement that I put out. I don't know that I want to repeat that, uh, but if you have any questions. I just, I mean, populism doesn't work. I, I quote that ML Mencken line, which is to every complex problem, there's a solution which is simple, clear, and wrong. And unfortunately, that's what we're hearing. And again, on the, on the Trump wing of the party, I haven't heard policy other than saying we're going to build a wall. And by the way, he was president. He was president for four years. He built 50 miles. What did he get done? Or he said, well, how about the tax change? Well, the tax, that was Paul Ryan. That, that wasn't the Biden plan. He did, of course, he had a health care plan. Remember that? That was going to, everybody's going to have low-cost health insurance that was fabulous. Never proposed. Never saw. He was in four years. So it's not a policy-centric approach. And, and Jake, I asked him if he was misreading the party. Given the fact that Donald Trump is on the, his path to winning the Republican nomination, at least at the moment, looks like that he could certainly be the Republican nominee and Romney being an outlier of sorts. He said, I'm not looking at changing the party within the next two years. He said, over the next decade. Jake. Yeah, he, he acknowledged he was an outlier when you put that question uh, to him. Uh, Manu, th there was speculation that Romney could have been facing a tough re-election fight. Uh, Donald Trump certainly uh, would have him in his target, uh, would, would want to recruit somebody to defeat him, would have put some energy into that. Um, do you think that played a factor into this? It would have been a tough fight, no question about it. Romney was asked about that at this press conference. He said that he's seen polls that made him feel better about his standing back home. But he said he flatly realizes that a number of people simply disagreed with his position as his handling of Donald Trump. He said he had hoped that people within his party believed that he was standing on principle and they would reward him for that. But fully knowing full well that this would have been a battle to win re-election here, uh, he suggested that perhaps... That was not the reason why he wanted to step aside. He simply continued to point to his age as being the main factor here. But no question, Jake, even though the safe seat is a safe Republican seat, and even though Republican voters in Utah are not as pro-Trump as some other red states in the union, it would have been a fight for him to win re-election, something they simply did not want to do at this stage of his life. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Our panel's here to discuss. Uh, Charlie uh, Dent, a former Republican congressman from Pennsylvania, is uh, Senator Romney like the last Republican statesman in the Senate, do you think? Well, I don't think he's the last one, but he certainly is an elder statesman in a party where, where we don't really like to listen to elder statesmen too much anymore. Uh, so, but no, Mitt Romney, I think, is right in his analysis. There's no shame in retiring at the age of 80 or 77. It's okay. And I think that Mitt, you know, he's, he's dedicated his life, uh, much of his life to public service. And uh, he's been an adult. He's been talking about policy, the future, and, and frankly, in a party that uh, really wants to focus on Donald Trump and his grievances in the past. And so I think it's a big loss for the party, and we're going to need voices to replace him. You've, uh, you've spent a lot of time with him. You've mm -hmm. done documentaries about uh, Mitt Romney and Ann Romney. Um, what do you think uh, the country loses with him retiring from politics? We still get him for 
a, a little bit more time, but like he, he is stepping, he's stepping aside. An, an honest uh, politician. I think that what you heard today in that press conference was somebody who was uh, telling the truth as he saw it, and he, he wasn't sugarcoating anything. He wasn't sugarcoating how he felt about Donald Trump. Uh, he wasn't sugarcoating about how he felt about uh, House Republicans or the whole notion of an impeachment inquiry. He was saying that he hadn't seen any hard evidence. And so, you know, he stands out in many ways, obviously, as a Republican who voted twice for impeachment, but also as somebody who uh, went on the Senate floor and said that he had to stick with his ethics and his moral values, and that's why he had to vote for, for impeachment. So it's a, it's, you know, it's a rarity these days that you don't get canned answers from people. And I think today was what you saw is who Mitt Romney really is. Alencia, as the Democrat at the table, I'm sure you disagree with Mitt Romney, a very conservative Republican on most issues. Uh, is there any part of you that feels bad that he's leaving or, or is it just good riddance? Well, I'm kind of in the middle in that if there's going to be a Republican in the Senate, I would appreciate it in being a Mitt Romney who will stand up to a Donald Trump, right, who actually voted to impeach him, right? That is really important that he is taking, you know, he's looking at our politics and what they are regardless of the party affiliation and talking about that. But, you know, the reality is, as a Democrat, I see it as an opportunity for us to hopefully run someone that could potentially win in Utah. I mean, it's an uphill battle. Yeah. It is an uphill battle. Yeah. I'm giving her a lot of side-eye. Yeah. The director's not catching it, but Alencia's laughing because I, I am a, laughing. there's a lot of side-eye being given over here. It's Utah. That's a it pretty conservative place. And I, and I hope, More though, conservative I mean, I think the one thing we do hope is that the whoever wins the seat is not any more extreme than Mitt Romney, that they um, would maybe toe the line that he does. Okay, good luck with that. So Romney is the only <laughs> Republican member of Congress to vote twice to impeach Donald mm -hmm. Trump, as we noted. Um, Romney sat down with McKay Com uh, Coppins. This is interesting. They, uh, he is cooperating uh, with a biography of him by McKay, uh, who's a great writer um, for The Atlantic. And an, exception, an excerpt from that biography published today in The Atlantic the senator tells Coppins a few months after the insurrection, quote, a very large portion of my party, he told me one day, really doesn't believe in the Constitution. Later, he goes on to talk about democracy, telling Coppins, quote, this is a very fragile thing, he told me. Authoritarianism is like a gargoyle lurking over the cathedral, ready to pounce. For the first time in his life, he wasn't sure if the cathedral would hold. What do you make of that? Well, I'm, I'm afraid that Mitt Romney is speaking truth again here, that there is an element within the party that, that is uh, really susceptible to these authoritarian impulses. I think that's true. I like to think that's not most of the party, but there are some, uh, you know, who will listen to Donald Trump when he talks about suspending the Constitution. They think, hey, at a boy. No, I mean, there, there are people who will go down that road. I think, I don't think it's a majority. But it comes back to leadership. We need people standing up and talking about democratic values, democratic with small d, democratic values, uh, and, and leading the base rather than they're being led by Donald Trump with no other narrative out there. And Trump is making all these crazy autocratic type statements uh, that people will follow. And by the way, just for the record, you were one of the first Republicans in Congress I remember standing up to Donald Trump. Just, oh, yeah. Just so, I have the welts. So, just, so, just, <laughs> just, just, so, just so people, I remember doing a, a, an interview with you for a documentary we were doing, yeah. and I remember thinking, oh, my God, he's going to 
He's going to get clobbered. Oh, yeah. And speaking of which, Donald Trump reacted to the news on Truth Social in, in, in oh. his uh, typical classy fashion. He wrote, fantastic news for America, the great state of Utah and for the Republican Party. Mitt Romney, sometimes referred to as Pierre Delecto. That's actually, that's a, that's actually funny. That was Mitt Romney's uh, <laughs> burner <laughs> Twitter account. That's, yeah. a, that's a good shot. That's a clean shot. Yeah. Pierre Delecto will not be seeking a second term in the U.S. Senate, where he did not serve with distinction. A big primary fight against him was in the offing. But now that will not be necessary. Congrats to all. Make America great again. How gracious. Yeah. I mean, come on. So it's, look, he's an enemy of, of Mitt Romney's because Mitt Romney voted twice to impeach him. And as Romney said today, you know, there are some people who are all about grievances and who are all about retribution. There and that's is. Exhibit A. Yeah. One of the other things that's interesting here, and it's not a subtext, it's a text, is Mitt Romney saying... If I ran for re-election and won, I would be in my mid-80s at the end of my term. And saying, basically, he said clearly that both Biden and Trump should step aside for a new generation. But also, basically, you know, we shouldn't have people in their 80s in the Senate. You know, that's been a topic of conversation for a very long time, and not just when it comes to the people running for president, right? Some of the senators, their ages are being discussed as well. And look, I I tend to, uh, I I appreciate what he said. I appreciate that he is addressing it on the nose. But I I also will say, look, I... Y'all know I support President Biden and he's very sharp and he has proven time and time again that, you know, while people have concerns about his age, he is very smart and been able to do a lot of things historically that other presidents haven't been able to. So I'm pretty biased here. Thank you, one and all. Appreciate it. (laughs) Speaker Kevin McCarthy spent today trying to persuade members of his own party and uh, an impeachment inquiry into President Biden was an appropriate step. How it's still not appeasing some MAGA members, what they told CNN about the move next. And nearly 60 years after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, a Secret Service agent who was with him that day will be here on this show with what he says is information about a key piece of evidence from the scene. Stay with us. In our politics lead, impeachment bait and switch. That's how one hard right House Republican describes Speaker Kevin McCarthy's impeachment inquiry into President Biden. CNN's Melanie Zanona is on Capitol Hill for us. Melanie, Republican Congressman Matt Gates of Florida is not letting McCarthy off the hook. In fact, today he accused him of gaslighting the Republicans. Yeah, that's right. Matt Gates, of course, has long been a thorn in the side of leadership. But Gates thinks that McCarthy is only now going down this route because hardliners like Gates have been threatening his speakership. They are angry about spending issues. They are angry that McCarthy violated the deal he made to become speaker back in January. And they're angry that he hasn't moved more quickly on the topic of impeachment and the topic of subpoenas. But let's take a listen to what Gates told me a little bit ago. Because we've seen a history with Kevin McCarthy where when his own power is jeopardized, he gaslights an impeachment that will never be. It is a way to divert from the very, the, the very failure to uh, align to the commitment that was made in January. So, you know, I think Joe Biden deserves impeachment. No question about that. We may be forcing some votes on it um, in, in the coming days and weeks. Now, McCarthy is serious about launching an impeachment inquiry. He's already directed his committees to move forward, and there are efforts underway to begin planning. James Comer, the head of the House Oversight Committee, said they're going to have a hearing sometime this month to lay out what they have found so far. There's also going to be some briefings. They briefed Senate Republicans today. They're going to be briefing House Republicans tomorrow to try to really give them a sense of where things stand, even though they have yet to prove, Jake, all of their allegations about Biden directly profiting off his 
his son's business deals or proving that Biden made policy decisions because of them. But of course, an impeachment inquiry is different than actual impeachment articles. And it is clear that there are still skeptics. A lot of moderates are not on board yet, so there's still a lot of work to go for House Republicans here, Jake. Melanie, at least one of the House committees that is part of this impeachment inquiry is already planning its first hearing. Yeah, that's right. So that's the House Oversight Committee. They have not yet announced what witnesses are going to be or what that's going to look like or whether they would have new evidence at this point. A lot of what we heard has been these recycled allegations that we've been hearing. And a lot of these committees have already been at work trying to bring in witnesses, trying to get their hands on bank records. But they are trying to move forward and show that they have momentum with this impeachment inquiry. Again, it's unclear how long this timeline is going to be, when they're going to wrap it up. But a lot of Republicans telling us that they want to finish it before the end of this year, Jake. All right, Melanie Zanona, thanks so much. Now to the race for 2024. Let's cue that music, the special election music. Yes. Yes. The next Republican presidential debate is exactly two weeks away. Looking to repeat his standout performance from the first one, at least that's what many critics said, is presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Today, Ramaswamy Speaking at a conservative think tank here in D.C. about gutting the FBI, the Department of Education, and other federal agencies, effectively promised to lay off thousands of federal workers. CNN's Eva McKend has more for us now on Ramaswamy's speech and his efforts to differentiate himself from the Republican presidential frontrunner, former President Donald Trump. We're going to get a lot of pushback to this speech. I have no doubt about it. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy vowing to go further than Donald Trump in reducing the size of the federal government. This vision is not an original vision. Excellent presidents from Reagan to Trump have spoken to the same ideal. And I give credit to Donald Trump for taking more steps than have been taken in a generation. During his 2016 campaign for the White House, Trump made a rallying cry out of cutting the federal bureaucracy. It is time to drain... The swamp in Washington, D.C. Now, Ramaswamy, who is attempting to seize the label of political outsider, is making the case he would be the presidential hopeful best able to accomplish that task. I do think it takes an outsider who has, if I may say, complete and total disregard for the norms of Washington, D.C. And I'm guilty as charged on that. Speaking at a Trump-aligned think tank in Washington, Ramaswamy unveiling his proposal to eliminate at least five major government agencies, including the Department of Education, the FBI, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It's part of a push by the political newcomer to reduce the federal workforce by 75 percent. The people who we elect to run the government ought to be the ones who actually run the government, not the managerial bureaucracy in three-letter government agencies. Past Republican presidents have proposed sweeping cuts to the federal government only to encounter significant obstacles. Ronald Reagan called for eliminating the departments of education and energy, but both agencies still exist. Presidents can't just willy-nilly fire a million employees, abolish agencies, and do it without involvement by Congress. And frankly, no Congress would go along with a crazy plan like this. Trump has said he wants to move the Department of Education responsibilities to the states. And Ron DeSantis has discussed closing agencies too, the IRS and Departments of Commerce, Energy and Education. But Ramaswamy goes further. Do we want 
incremental reform? Or do we want revolution? This marks another radical policy proposal from the 38-year-old Ohio entrepreneur who has shaken up the political field with pronouncements like raising the voting age to 25 and eliminating automatic citizenship to American-born citizens, American-born children, rather, of undocumented immigrants. Running to the right of his opponents, Ramaswamy is convinced, if elected, his latest plan can survive legal challenges given the current makeup of the Supreme Court. So, Jake, he uh, met with some of us reporters after that speech and in on-the-record but off-camera briefing, and he essentially said, the reason why I think I can do all of this is given the makeup of the court. All right, very interesting. We're going to be taking uh, many more deep dives into these policy proposals from these candidates. Thanks so much, Eva McCann. Really appreciate it. Coming up, a police dog, a plane with heat-sensing technology, and some tall, tall grass. Stunning new details emerging about the now-captured Pennsylvania fugitive who had been on the run for 14 days after escaping from a Chester County, Pennsylvania prison. That's next. In our national lead, new pictures just into CNN from the U.S. Marshals Service showing the exact moment that the escaped killer was caught after 14 days on the run. Heat-seeking technology and a canine were used to find and capture Danilo Cavalcante as he apparently slept atop his stolen rifle in the tall, tall grass of Chester County, Pennsylvania. The convicted murderer who escaped from the Pennsylvania prison by crab-walking his way out now heading back to a life behind bars, along with a new felony escape charge. CNN's Danny Freeman has more on how this wild cat and mouse chase ended. The subject is in custody. Repeating, subject is in custody. After 14 days, multiple search perimeters, and hundreds of law enforcement officers combing woods, farms, and creeks, escaped inmate Danilo Cavalcante is finally caught. It is uh, a true pleasure to stand here this morning and uh, talk to all of you about uh, bringing this manhunt to a successful conclusion. The convicted murderer who crab-walked out of a Chester County prison, seen this morning from above by CNN affiliate CBS News Philadelphia, in cuffs, disheveled, and bloody. He was apprehended this morning with no shots fired. The dramatic capture set in motion just after midnight Wednesday. Police got a call about a burglary alarm near Prizer Road toward the eastern edge of the law enforcement perimeter set up in northern Chester County. Tactical teams rushed to the area but couldn't find anything until support arrived from above. There was uh, an aircraft overhead utilizing uh, FLIR technology and close to 1 a.m. picked up a heat signal that they began to track. But then came a storm. We had a weather system that also came in and we had lightning that was flashing all around and it caused the aircraft to have to depart the area. But police said the tactical teams stayed on the ground and secured the area through the storm. Then, shortly after 8 a.m., the storm gone, the team moved in on this wooded area behind a local business. They were able to move in very quietly. They had the element of surprise. Cavalcante did not realize he was surrounded until that had occurred. That did not stop him from trying to escape. The man, who had avoided police for two weeks, made one last effort to crawl away, but a Border Patrol dog stopped him. He continued to resist, but was uh, forcibly taken into custody. No one was injured as a result of that. 
he did sustain a minor bite wound. So from your perspective, this was one of the best opportunities they had to get him. Yeah, yeah, because if he got out of here, it would have been real tough. Doug Brewer works right up against the wooded area where Cavalcante was found. Oh, it was just kind of nice that, you know, to know that they got him and, you know, we can go back to life, you know, go back to doing our thing normally. And relief felt by the family of Deborah Brandau, the woman Cavalcante brutally stabbed in front of her two young children. One of the first calls we made upon learning about this capture was to the Brandau family, who, as you can imagine, had been living in a complete nightmare. They can now finally sleep again. And Danny, let's go back to those stunning new photos of Cavalcante's capture. You're, you're near where they captured him this morning. Walk us through how you knew something was happening. That's right, Jake. Well, earlier this morning, we recognized that something was happening because helicopters really began to circle uh, very tightly around this area, which was about a mile uh, down the road from where we have been uh, for the duration of this part of the perimeter in this part of Chester County. But like you said, Jake, this photo just released by the U.S. Marshals just really captures not just the intensity of the moment this capture happened this morning, but also the intense density of the woods that are right behind me uh, in this forest. And you can see Cavalcante on the ground. You can see all of these law enforcement officers uh, apprehending him right there. And Jacob, perhaps most importantly, you can see that Border Patrol canine at the bottom of the screen, uh, that dog really responsible for stopping Cavalcante as he tried to make one final escape. But that did not work, Jake. All right, Danny Friedman, thank you so much. And great coverage. You've been covering this now for two weeks. You've done a fantastic job. Good job, man. Be sure to tune in to CNN tonight. Laura Coates takes a look at the manhunt, capturing a killer. That's at 11 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Outgoing Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Mark Milley speaking out to CNN today about former President Donald Trump's accusation that Milley wanted the U.S. to attack Iran. That story's next. A federal judge has ruled to restrict former President Donald Trump's access to classified information as Mr. Trump prepares to head to trial for allegedly criminally mishandling sensitive national security secrets. The federal indictment includes Trump's handling of a classified Pentagon document about a potential attack on Iran. You can hear Trump blame his chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, for wanting to attack Iran. This is a recording at his Bedminster Resort, an audio exclusively obtained by CNN last June. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look, this was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This wasn't done by me. This was him. All sorts of stuff. Pages long. As General Mark Milley prepares to retire as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he sat down for an exit interview with CNN's Fareed Zakaria. And here's what he had to say specifically about who was pressing whom to attack Iran. There's a specific accusation about you made by the, by the former president's chief of staff, uh, Mark Meadows, uh, and he says that there is this four-page memo on uh, attack plan to attack for the United States to attack Iraq, Iran. Uh, Trump himself has talked about this. This is the famous mm-hmm. uh, classified sure. document that he was waving around. But Meadows makes the accusation that uh, you were pressing President Trump to attack Iran. There are other reports that say, in fact, it was Trump who was pressing you. What is the accurate statement? Well, Fred, look at it. It'd be very inappropriate for me to comment on anything that's under a current federal investigation, so uh, I won't. But, but let me just say this. 
um, as the chairman uh, or any member of the Joint Chiefs, our job is to render advice. Uh, we have plans for all kinds of things. And when we render advice, uh, typically uh, we say course of action one, two, or three. We talk about the costs and the risks, and we make recommendations. And I can assure you uh, that not one time have I ever recommended uh, to attack Iran. When, when Trump talks about, the, you know, the, this, this plan and he says, uh, you know, they've, they've been pushing it on me or he, he, he sort of implies that that's the, this is, this is a, a, a document that presumably goes through the options and, and gives the president the final decision. I don't know the document they're talking about. I've never seen, uh, you know, no one's presented me what, what it is they're talking about. So I really still can't comment on it. But I can assure you that, um, you know, a military attack on Iran is a very, very serious undertaking. Uh, we have capabilities. We have plans. Uh, that, that's not particularly unusual to, uh, to comment on that. But, um, but I am not going to go further and discuss any of the details. But I can tell you with certainty uh, that this chairman uh, never recommended a wholesale attack on Iran. Uh, and, and to do that, I think, would require a significant degree of risk. Uh, that we may or may not want to take, given the circumstances, but uh, that, that part of it didn't happen. And I'm not sure, I don't know the exact uh, quotes that Mr. Meadows said, but I can assure you, I know what I've done, and it's not to recommend an attack on Iran. Joining me to discuss uh, is Congressman and Chairman of the Select uh, House Committee on Intelligence, Mike Turner of Ohio. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Chairman. Uh, you what's your me. reaction to General Milley's response that he never recommended a wholesale attack on Iran? Well, I, of course, I believe him. I mean, he has great credibility, and I've been with him in meetings concerning Iran, and I've never been, seen any indication of his desire or, or willingness to make recommendations. Uh, that would result in, in a military conflict. But I, I think what's important here about what he just said is, you know, any of our adversaries, you would expect that, of course, our military is looking at what options would be necessary in case there was a conflict. That, it, you know, illuminates to us what capabilities we need, what capabilities they have. Those types of, of exercises or, or uh, reviewing is what you would expect of your military for all of our adversaries, especially those self-declared and who are also antagonistic to our allies. Aside from Trump and General Milley pointing the finger at each other over, you know, who might have wanted to attack Iran, it is obviously, as you note, the job of the military to create dozens of contingency plans over any possible ways to protect national security. We just don't expect leaders to discuss those plans publicly or, you know, in, with individuals who can't be trusted to, to keep that information, you know, discreet. Well, certainly it, it has, you know, a... a uh uh, a, um, it, it sounds as if it's extraordinary. It, it, I think, brings greater attention to the fact that it looks like the United States is an antagonist when, in fact, we're dealing with Iran, who is, you know, aggressor throughout their area uh, and continues to threaten both the United States and, and our allies. So I think it, it also mischaracterizes the situation that we're trying to, to address here. Um, but, you know, we didn't uh, take any military action against Iran, um, and I think you would as you had just said, expect that our military would understand in all of our adversaries, especially those that are self-declared uh, and that those who have such great capabilities, to do exercises, to do planning in case we find ourselves in a conflict. Uh, biggest news among House Republicans this week, of course, is Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, calling to open a formal impeachment inquiry against President Biden. Uh, based on any evidence you have seen 
Uh, do you support this inquiry? And don't you think there should have been a vote as he pledged just like 12 days ago there, would, there was going to be? Well, Nancy Pelosi, as you know, had no vote when she opened the inquiry. This is just an inquiry, meaning an investigation. What it goes to is the next step of giving Congress additional tools and subpoena power for documents that they need. I think Chairman Comer's done a great job, and the documents that he's found, he's put up on the Oversight House website that show uh, the, uh, the monies, the accounts, the, the issues of where there's real question as to what Hunter Biden and what Joe Biden himself might have been doing. And so certainly the investigation needs to continue. Congressman Mike Turner, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. And you can see more of Fareed Zakaria's interview uh, with General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on GPS, this Sunday at 10 a.m. Coming up, he was one of the Secret Service agents at John F. Kennedy's side when the president was assassinated in Dallas. And now he's sharing a story about one of the bullets it's raising new questions about what actually happened that horrible day. That former Secret Service agent will be here to tell me his story next. In our national lead, a new version of what might have happened to the magic bullet that was key to the official story of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, according to the Warren Commission report. This is in a new book called The Final Witness, A Kennedy Secret Service Agent Breaks His Silence After 60 Years. The book is by one-time Secret Service agent Paul Landis, who was then in his late 20s and provided security for the first lady, Jacqueline Kennedy. Now, Landis's book is adding to the controversy over what has been called the magic bullet theory, a reference to the Warren Commission's conclusion that before the fatal shot hit Kennedy in the head, a single bullet recovered almost intact passed through Kennedy's throat and continued on to seriously wound Texas Governor John Connolly in the seat in front of Kennedy. Landis was in the car directly behind President Kennedy's limousine on November 22, 1963. He heard the shots and he saw with his own eyes much of what happened. Landis filed reports and continued working in the security detail for Mrs. Kennedy, but he left the Secret Service less than a year after the assassination. And he never mentioned then his own moment with that single intact bullet until he says he found out the Warren Commission report did not match his memory. Landis writes, quote, the super bullet hadn't been on Governor Connolly's stretcher in trauma room number two. I recognized it as the bullet I had found in the limo and placed next to President Kennedy's feet in trauma room number one. That assertion has kicked up a debate over the so-called magic bullet, and former Secret Service agent Paul Landis joins us now to talk about his book. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. So you were in the car directly behind Kennedy's during the Dallas motorcade. What do you remember about the shots being fired? I was riding on the uh, right rear bumper of the uh, halfback, the follow-up car, and we had just completed our turn uh, off of Houston Street onto Elm. And the two cars, the president's limo, halfback, the follow-up car, were just straightening out when I heard a loud report that I recognized as coming from a high-powered rifle. And I immediately turned, looked uh, over my shoulder to the right where the sound had come from, and uh, I, I couldn't see anything right away. And uh, I turned quickly and looked at the president, and President Kennedy uh, was kind of 
leaning a little bit to uh, his left towards Mrs. Kennedy. There was a second shot. Uh, again, there was no re I saw no reaction from where I was inside the uh, president's limo. And <clears throat> we were starting to move at a little higher rate of speed. Uh, Clint Hill was racing towards the uh, president's limo. And almost immediately after the second shot, uh, there was a third, third report, and uh, we, we passed under the uh, overpass and raced, raced from there to, to uh, Parkland Memorial Hospital. Yeah. I want to get to the, what happened at the hospital, but just to uh, clarify, do you think there was only one gunman? I did. I only heard three shots. Um, yeah, they all came from the rear. The third shot, we were so close to the overpass, um, it sounded like the sound was there or came from that direction. But uh, it was later when I learned that there, there had been three cartridge cases founded mm -hmm. in the school book depository and everything was kind of associated with, uh, with Oswald at that point. Right. Um, Let's get to your actions uh, after the motorcade arrived at Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas. You write that you saw two bullet fragments sitting in a pool of blood. You picked one up and you put it back. Then you say you found an intact bullet in the seat and you write, quote, it was a completely intact bullet. It had been hidden behind Mrs. Kennedy all the time she was seated. No wonder I hadn't seen it sooner. I picked it up and quickly examined it. It was approximately two inches long and in almost perfect condition. It was not distorted in any way and had rifle striations running lengthwise along the sides. Man, oh man, oh man, I thought, what should I do? And you write that you put it in your pocket. Why'd you put it in your pocket? I started to put it back and then I hesitated for a moment because um, I had looked around when I'd been scanning the back area. Uh, I saw no Secret Service agents there uh, to secure the car, and we were getting ready to, to exit uh, the limo, and I didn't want to leave the seat, leave the, the bullet there because I was afraid uh, people were starting to converge on the, towards the car. I thought a souvenir hunter, somebody might see that. I didn't want, want to have the press be taking pictures or doing anything like that. And then you but, write that you, you put the bullet on the stainless steel examination table where President Kennedy was being treated. The examination table is not the same thing as the gurney used to bring Kennedy from the limousine into the hospital. Exactly where did you put the bullet and, and why did you put it there? Uh, with the crowd, I got just pushed into that room. I was right behind Mrs. Kennedy. When we were entering the room, I stepped behind her to keep her from getting uh, pushed. And uh, the crowd, she stepped to the side, to the left, just inside the doorway when we entered the trauma room. Uh, people were pushing and shoving, and I just got shoved right up against the examination table. And it just so happened I was right there next to uh, the president's feet. Mm. Um, people were coming in. It was, it was chaos and at that moment, I thought, well, this is the perfect place to leave the bullet. It should be with 
the president's body. It's an important piece of evidence. And uh, this was the opportunity to leave it. And so I slipped it out of my pocket, put it next to the, sh the president's sh uh, shoes. Obviously, witnessing the Kennedy assassination must have been hugely traumatic. Um, is that why uh, this account is different from what you what you said at the time? Uh, why are the memories new? Well, that's that's pretty pretty tough at the time. Everything was pretty pretty stressful uh, for all the agents. There was a lot of rushing around trying to, just to figure things out, what to do. Um, Vice President Johnson had been rushed into the hospital. Uh, I wasn't aware of where he was or, or what was happening with him. Um, I, I just stayed uh, in view of Mrs. Kennedy, and I kept trying. I was afraid I was going to pass out, and I kept trying, telling myself, i got to hang in or I've got to hang in there. And uh, at one point, somebody came out of the trauma uh, room one, said anybody know the president's blood type, and uh, Clint Hill, Roy Kellerman, both reached for their uh, billfolds, and uh, Roy Kellerman hit, got the answer first. It, it, it does seem as though this new account uh, calls into question the, you know, the so-called magic bullet theory that, that um, perhaps this, this provides new information, but it doesn't necessarily change the conclusion of, of who assassinated President Kennedy, I mean, is that what you want people to take away from that specific part of this larger narrative in your book? When I wrote my book, all I wanted to do was tell people what I saw and what I did. I was not to take away uh, from my feelings. Uh, I had never read the Warren Commission report. I wasn't interviewed. I expected to be. Uh, I was afraid I would be because I was afraid I was going to break down and be an embarrassment to the Secret Service. Um, I, I was, all I saw that whole weekend uh, was I had a, like a newsreel tape going through my mind over and over of the president's head exploding and uh, it was it was a pretty tough time for me, and that's that's why I ended up leaving this the service. I said I was going to give myself six months. If I didn't feel any better, I was out of here. Yeah. And I reached the point where I was just I thought I was going to be a, a, a not a not a good agent. I was lose confidence in myself, and I just felt that if I got away, I'd if I stayed. I would have been an embarrassment to the Secret Service and failed in some way or another. Paul Landis, thank you so much. Congratulations on your book. Uh, it, it was an honor talking to you. Again, the name of the book is The Final Witness. It comes out October 10th, but you can pre-order it now. We really appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you. Coming up next, the political impact of Republican Senator Mitt Romney announcing he will not run for re-election. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.